This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm your host, Norman Lau, and thank you for joining us once again in the conference room aboard the NXO one Now, we have a really fun episode for you tonight because one of my favorite episodes of Enterprise is in Season 2's first flight. Now, I know that a lot of fans out there felt that it was the episode that everyone wanted to see because it dealt with... I think the Enterprise content that a lot of people wanted to see, and that was more of a slow burn to the process, more of a Star Trek meets the right stuff. And what we would like to bring to you this episode is more in line, more along the lines of, of agreeing with what Brandon Braga did, where we felt that this was the right tone and the right storytelling format for a true prequelized concept, because... We know how networks work, and we know that there are the powers that be, the executive decision process, and I know through Blu-ray interviews and through all the different online interviews that Brandon Braga said that they saw things differently. So the first season of Enterprise that was produced, in my opinion and in the opinion of my esteemed co-hosts, they never truly established what this prequel meant to the bedrock principles of storytelling. Why are we here? What are we talking about? Who are we talking about? And the whens, the wheres, the whys. And how does this all relate to Star Trek? Why was it important that we chose this period for the overall canon in history? And that is pretty much how we're going to discuss this episode moving forward. Because what we would like to do is we would like to extrapolate on what we believe would have been successful along the lines of what Brandon Braga originally wanted to pitch. So back with here, me in the conference room to help me rewrite Enterprise Season 1, quote-unquote rewrite Enterprise Season 1, are the two most influential, and everyone keep this under your hats, temporal accord agents that have finally revealed themselves to me. And they're also my friends and my esteemed guests and friends of the network, on the one mic, we have our content coordinator, Will Wynn. Will, how you doing? I'm good. This black leather that all the temporal agents wear is pretty tight, though. Pretty tight-fitting. I prefer the uh, blue jumpsuits over these guys. What would you prefer, that we go back in the decon chamber? <laughs> no, I think the conference room is good. Perfect. And on mic two, we have Star Trek Horizon past, present, and future creator, Tommy Kraft. What's up, Tommy? Oh, not too much, though I do have to say I'm actually preferring this really weird temporal agent outfit that has like all the weird tubing and stuff all over it, you know, that's like obviously futuristic. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That's right. I, I think it's quite, yeah, it's it's quite comfortable. Uh, Daniel's made a good choice Yeah, I was there. thinking of the temporal agents from Trials and Tribulations, the, uh, the clothes that they're wearing, but you're right. Uh, the tubing. Oh, yeah, no, this like one is tubing, much better. The weird like textured suit. <laughs> oh yeah, so it's a good suit. Being all comfortable in their temporal agent suits, I've asked uh, Will <laughs> and Tommy to kind of banter back and forth about 
what we would like to discuss with you tonight and what I've always loved about science fiction is that science fiction has the opportunity to tell really humanistic stories set in a futuristic fashion. That's always kind of like been the bedrock principle of Star Trek. And especially in Enterprise, I think what we missed here was an opportunity to still focus on very human elements. And one of the points I would like to start with about rewriting or reimagining season one was to take a look at the political unrest of that period of 2151 and talk about the freshness that is still there from the Third World War, the xenophobia that is still there because I just still believe that humanity has certain flaws that over the course of the decades and centuries aren't quite filtered out yet. So we see that in season four with John Frederick Paxton and Tara Prime, but I think we could even bring that back to the an underlying tone of the first season with political unrest, Terra Prime, and how the xenophobia of humanity could be affecting the way that the storyline unfolds. So what do you guys think about that aspect of it? And do you think that could have been successful in terms of capturing the audience's attention with a new Star Trek show? I think it absolutely could have captured the imagination of the audience if you go from the premise that Trek is a mirror for social commentary on the current time period then with Enterprise in 2000 in the wake of 9-11 it becomes very prescient for the show to become a mirror in terms of our own politics in terms of our own international relations or government relations and the political aspect is an area that's always been uh, a ripe topic for Star Trek to tackle in various ways, of course. And I think with Enterprise being the, the chronologically the one that's the closest to our time period, it could have been the one that drew the most direct parallels. I know that in the Enterprise time period, we're supposed to have one single Earth government, which is fine. But I like to think that even after the formation of that single solitary world government, that there would still be factions, regional factions, that there wouldn't be necessarily nation states, but that there may be, that there would be political parties, political factions that would be regional, that would cross what would uh, have been uh, national borders or country borders in the past, but now they've formed these huge blocks by region, and you can still see the type of machinations and the type, the type of behind-the-scenes manipulations that we see now with nation states, but at least in the one world government of enterprise, you still see it happening at that party level, at that at that regional level. I think to do this, it would have been, it would have made the fans even more angry as it was. I mean, I think it's actually an interesting idea and I would have liked to see the first season go along this political direction and with less of a, a common a commonality in human in, in humanity more of a divide between people and as it was we saw that in season four with Terra prime but to start off the show i think people would have been screaming oh this isn't star trek when you have humans kind of divided like this even though there's the one earth government um to to show humans in a less than favorable light but that said I agree with John Billingsley when he said the one line he would have scratched from the pilot was when Tripp said poverty, disease, hunger, we got all get rid of all of that in a century or something like that. Because I I think that would have been to see that to see poverty, disease and hunger kind of phasing out would have been a really interesting story point to play instead of picking up right at the, where where it already has gone out. You know, one of my all-time favorite shows is Babylon 5, and one of the reasons why I felt it was successful is because it did a great job of illustrating, even in the future, far in the distant future, how human rights began to fight back against alien influences on the station. And because of our relationship with the first contact situation with the Vulcans and with Zephram Cochran, we 
as fans don't really see the evolution of that relationship. So by and large, we kind of go along with the whole everything's okay between the humans and the Vulcans because the Vulcans are obviously they're superior. They're warp capable. They found us because of Cochrane's Flight of the Phoenix. And why wouldn't they be um, benevolent to us and become our guides and our not even really like our leaders, but more like our parents because we saw what the Vulcans kind of turned into. So I think it would have been interesting to see a little bit of pushback from some pockets of human civilization saying, yeah, I don't know if these, if the Vulcans are really in our best interest. We uh, obviously we saw that with Archer and the way that he felt about the Vulcans holding back the warp program, but take it to the street level when you just have the common man looking at the way that the government is being manipulated by the Vulcans in, in their eyes or some type of coercion. I don't know. I, I, th- I think that that's just some really gritty storytelling that could have been touched on, but I'm, you may be right, Tommy. It's like, I don't think the fans may see that as being Star Trek. Yeah. I think you would have to separate the two issues. I think in a realistic scenario, I don't think, this would have you know flown it all as evidenced by the fact that they went with the more traditional broken bow pilot. I think obviously they recognize that in real life. So for the purpose of you know this type of exercises, type of extrapolation, we're going to have to at least accept on a baseline level that hypothetically the fans could accept this. But you know realistically, Tommy's right that there's almost zero chance that this would have this would have flown. This reminds me of actually two things. Recently, this reminds me of Caprica, the spinoff from Battlestar Galactica, which a lot of people had the same concerns and complaints in terms of this isn't the BSG that they thought it was going to be. It was a prequel, but it was a prequel set on Caprica, and it was about the families and the colonials setting up the the foundation for the eventual uh, the attack by the Cylons. And I think uh, I haven't seen it myself too, but I've heard that it was a show that if you went in with it. You went in with different expectations. It was a completely different show. And I feel Enterprise would have fallen in that same trap if it had, if it had chosen this particular um, storytelling. And on another note, this actually reminds me of the 90s show or late 90s show, Earth Final Conflict. Remember, it was Gene Roddenberry's Earth Final Conflict. Yep. Mm-hmm. There was that entire concept of the Talons coming to Earth and they are here to help us ostensibly. But then we realize they have an ulterior motive. They have an ulterior agenda. And I just made that connection right now because it was a Gene Roddenberry story or was based off of Gene Roddenberry. And it it tells that same type of story, this suspicion of, I wouldn't say caretakers, but these alien stewards that are here that are supposed to help us, but we really resent them. And we're, and we, we're not sure what their ultimate end game is, but we know that we need to find our own agency, our own, our own path forward. I think it's uh, the whole idea of being mistrustful of the alien stewards must be, it's something that we can relate to current events where you see uh, a lot of the issues we've had over in the Middle East and whatever side people come down on that politically, I can imagine how mistrustful a lot of civilians would be over there. And as we know, are of Americans or anyone other nationality or religion being over there. And it's it really is like this outside force coming in to the civilian person. And then just transplant that to an alien race that is much more advanced than us. And, you know, everybody on the planet now, not just this one little section, is wondering what are these people doing here? What is their real motive? And I think that would have been an interesting thing to explore as a as a beeline because there are always those pockets of opportunity to be able to see how they relate to what I would like to talk about next and and that's the characters because if you can't get an overarching plot line the way that you want to have it planned for storytelling then I think your next best your next best pitch would be focusing on Caring about the characters, and I think that's the one thing in Enterprise that we probably could have spent a little bit more time on because it would have allowed us to really get into the 
the hearts and the minds of who these crewmen and crew women were. Because we've said this time and time again on different episodes, we would like to have seen more of what Travis was all about, or Reed, or Hoshi, or even T'Pol before T'Pol was involved with the mission to bring Clang back to Kronos. An entire season of being able to see these characters and how they interacted with the Starfleet NX-01 program and their time at the Academy, or their time working with the Interspecies Medical Exchange, or as Hoshi alluded to in an episode where she was kicked out of Starfleet because she ran an illegal poker gambling ring, but her skills were so beyond qualification that they had to bring her back or Archer had to coax her back. Those are the stories that really make you pay attention to the core element of a successful show, and that's caring about the people. If you don't care about the characters, by and large, you don't really care about the show, no matter how good the plot line is, because... I believe it's the characters that you latch onto that bring you back from week to week. So, Tommy, you've written a lot of characters for Horizon. So, from your perspective, you have to agree, I think, in some respect, that focusing on the characters is a core element of capturing an audience. I agree completely, and I was just thinking about this today and what it is about more modern storytelling that I tend to like better in, for instance, cop shows. It's, they don't, most shows don't do the full serialized approach, but every week they're developing the characters a little bit more. And I think this is something that Enterprise and actually a lot of this, all of the Star Treks could have done, where each week is telling a sort of serialized story about that character's growth. You learn a little bit more about each character every week and it's a good way to get around having your show completely serialized but you're you're not completely serialized but you're telling more stories every week about the characters that makes sense I, I think they could have done this more with Enterprise and especially with this uh with this idea of our first season you know what that reminds me of Tommy it reminds me of the approach that Orange is the New Black um handles uh, that's characters. It's the same type of focus each week, but each focus each week is on one particular character, at least in the first season. And there are threads that tie all those characters together, but those those early episodes, they're very much about that one character before they went into prison. You, you learn a lot in terms of their development, but at the same time, at the end of the episode, you're going to have something that ties it into the, the larger ongoing present-day narrative. And I think that's uh, that's a really good point uh, in terms of modern storytelling and where that storytelling is now evolving to. It's not just long-form serialization, but a different take on developing a longer storyline. You can serialize the development of your characters and, like you're saying, without having to serialize the overall story of your show, which makes it accessible to newcomers every week, but also a lot more engaging for people who have been watching it for a long time because they've really seen the growth of all these characters. You know, one of the phrases I use a lot when I discuss Enterprise is the phrase missed opportunities. And I think that in this situation, talking about the characters, one of the true missed opportunities here, I think, was utilizing the 602 Club as a setting. In Star Trek The Next Generation, I think one of the most brilliant set moves that they added to the show was 10 Forward because it allowed you to see the officers in a in a non-mission or non-duty situation where they can sit down, have a drink, discuss what happened during their day. And if written well, that can become a plot line. So you could have Reed and Trip talk about something at the 602 Club. Ruby, much like Guinan, could have been an incredible character because she was the character that all of these junior officers or senior officers would confide in because she's your bartender. You know, go all the way back to the cage when the doctor was pouring Captain Pike his drink. And you know, it's like, you know, why are you pouring me a martinis? Cuz you're going to tell me think you're going to tell me things that you would never tell your doctor. So I'm your bartender for today because I need you to open up to me. That's where the 602 club I think would have been fantastic for not just season 1, but 
overall, you know, in Star Trek Enterprise because it's where you want to be. It's that central location where you want to sit down and be with these characters and see their daily lives and see them for being real people. And what if you overheard a conversation between A.G. and Jonathan Archer talking about they weren't the first choice for the captaincy. What if it was Hernandez and she was laid up with an illness and all of a sudden Ruby starts talking to the both of them and this leads into that great episode in season two, First Flight, where you see more of their relationship. These are those small moments where I just think that the first season never really took advantage of. And I don't think it would have... I don't think it would have hurt the show. I think it would have helped the show just because we like seeing the human moments. Well, I mean, do you agree with that or do you think that we should have just propelled forward as we did? No, I absolutely agree that those smaller moments would have moved the story forward tremendously. I think I would take it even a step further. In addition to adding the 602 Club and Ruby much earlier on in season one, I would have liked to have seen much more of a mixed crew. Now, you you know, we see in what we got in Enterprise, we see Flocks and T'Pol are the only non-Starfleet, non-human officers, non-human personnel on the NX-01. And I would still like to have Flocks and T'Pol obviously play a role on the crew, but I would have liked to have seen civilian specialists, civilian scientists, that they still had to recruit for this mission, that Starfleet wasn't this all-inclusive entity yet that we see later on in the 24th century, the 23rd century, that there were that there was a heterogeneity, that it wasn't homogenous yet, that there were different agencies, organizations. You, I would have loved to have seen a university professor, right? Maybe that could have been the Hoshi character or someone related to the Hoshi character in terms of, you know, they have a specialty, but they're, in, they're part of a university. They're not part of Starfleet or they're part of a civilian research uh, agency or entity. And it would have, begun to introduce concepts that Starfleet is still forming itself. It's still forming an identity. Humanity is still forming an identity. You see that later on when the Makos are introduced, you see them as a distinct separate military agency from Starfleet. But it would have been great to have seen different types of specialists from the get-go, mission specialists, mathematicians, physicists that weren't necessarily in uniform. Um, And you also saw... uh, you know, I think Chef, I don't think it's particularly clear whether he was Starfleet or not, whether he was a civilian serving on uh, NX ships. It would be nice to have seen that flushed out. You know, adding that type of world building, those types of layers on top of it uh, would have done tremendous uh, benefit, would have been uh, of tremendous benefit to the show, in my opinion. So in talking about how important the crew was in, in focusing on the storytelling One of the things that I also like about what some of the science fiction shows of the 90s did was focus on real-time situations, jobs, people having to deal with their daily lives, people having to deal with making a living. Now, I know in the Gene Roddenberry Star Trek universe, at least in the Kirk era, there is this whole aspect of we we don't need money. We don't really depend on the the monetary system that propels people to choose certain careers in life. And I just don't really see that anymore as being as true when you put it into the perspective of modern day versus the 1960s or 1966 and that aspect of Star Trek. So I'd like to have seen a return to maybe focusing on a big corporate structure that was prevalent in 2151 and a little bit earlier, and that was the Earth Cargo Authority. They went out there into the space lanes, and they went out there to provide supplies and materials to colonies. And there were these two great episodes that we've talked about before, Fortunate Sun and Horizon, that deal with the reality of their ever-shrinking authority of their own 
Space Lanes and Destiny because Starfleet was growing and growing and growing in their influence and their technology. And I'd like to think that they would have been resentful of it because we did see that in certain cases, especially on Fortunate Son. So what if the Earth Cargo Authority became almost the first line for Paxton's treachery against Starfleet and even his own kind of privatized enforcement force. Do you think that that would have been accepted by an audience? I just want to say one thing I think would be interesting since you mentioned it, the money aspect. We could have, like, that would have, to show the development of that on Enterprise in the first season or throughout even the whole show, how we got from a money system to really not using money, that could have been some really interesting storytelling and it would have opened up a lot of avenues for how humans made that huge transition. And you could have done a lot with the Earth Cargo Authority. Paxton could have been involved with that because I would imagine he would be very interested in sticking to the old corporate system of money. I think that could have been very fertile ground for some good stories and for developing his character. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think I think it's mentioned in Demons or Terra Prime that Paxton grew, grew up from a family of miners, that he grew up on Mars. He's used to you know, having that hard scrabble life. He's he's used to breathe, breathing low oxygen air, you know, he's he's been out there. He's been on the frontier and if you were to extrapolate this idea of Paxton being related to the ECA, it makes a lot of sense that he's actually, he's human, but he wasn't born on Earth. He was born on the frontier. And there could be this type of almost class resentment, class struggle between the core worlds of Earth and its colonies. The ECA has been going out there. They've been the the forefront of traveling in, in warp 1.5 ships and really seeding these colonies out there. And there could be a growing... Uh, resentment that's being led by Paxton who is able to organize these people on the fringes saying, you know, we've established ourselves out here. We've seen what aliens can do. We shouldn't trust them. Why should you, uh, you referring to Starfleet, why should we listen to you when you're just being manipulated by the Vulcans? We've been out here. We know what aliens are like. We've had first contact. We've had to struggle. It's not as easy as we've been led uh, you've been led to believe and now you're saying you want to build a warp five ship and go even further and it would have made a lot of sense it would have been a lot of that type of i, I that type of class struggle of paxton being a you know a man of the people although he's yeah he's a corporate man he he's he's wealthy but the fact that he can, he can tap into this very populist sentiment of the people in the colonies these very space blue collar workers who resent being dictated to by earth by starfleet of them encroaching on their own affairs their own business and i could see you know paxton you know beginning to say we need to take up arms just in case starfleet wants to enforce their laws in enforce vulcan laws you know they kind of view starfleet as the puppets of the vulcans and i can see you know that very much being a plot point that they could have really developed some some excellent points from. Well, see, and that's where I wanted to bring it back to the first point of the show when we were talking about the political unrest because I think that I didn't want to go for the the political machinations of a president versus another candidate trying to maintain their you know their their seat as an incumbent of the office. But it was more along the lines of Paxton kind of rising to power because he's such a good character. He's There's so much in him that's so very real and true as this representation of you can't shake all of humanity's frailties and weaknesses and faults through the generations. They're still going to be, and I'm... I may be on a smile island about this, but I know that the Star Trek fans believe in Gene Roddenberry's vision, but I still believe that there will be bias and racism and sexism and pettiness 
and all of the things that weigh down humanity still in the future because I just don't think that all of it is going to be gone so that all we focus on is moving to the stars. I just don't see that as being real. So if there were touchstones of that in such a central figure like Paxton, then you would be able to use him as this catalyst for pushing the desperate into situations where they would be able to execute his overarching goals of trying to basically cut the legs out of Starfleet's credibility and move the loyalty more back towards humanity. And I can see that him saying, why are we focusing on Starfleet's ability to go to the stars where we still have fundamental problems taking care of our own people here on Earth? Why not take the technology that you're putting on your starship and and, and translate that to better schools, better infrastructure, better hospitals, better educational facilities. Now, I know, of course, you know, and the reality is they're better than what we have now, but in Paxton's time, when he's looking at the layout of the land, he's just not satisfied. And he's not satisfied because aliens are becoming first or Starfleet's tenant to go out there and to seek out new life forms instead of taking care of our own is is putting humans second. So I always find that being a really good, rife background for storytelling. So I'm going to ask you guys to indulge me for a second because I wrote this little bitty of a kernel of an idea where I tie this all together. So imagine season one opening. You have this really nice arena and Admiral Forrest is talking and he's giving the Cochrane speech where he's saying that we're out there to go out and seek out new life and new civilizations. And he has Saval on one side with the Vulcan High Command. And he has the officers of Starfleet. And he's looking out over all of these people in the arena. And this giant explosion goes off. And as the rubble and the dust is settling, you see scrawled on the wall in some of that rubble, Terra Prime. I find that very compelling because the very first thing that happens in a Star Trek episode is violence which is completely against what traditional Star Trek storytelling is. But, well, as a Niner, I mean, Deep Space Nine was really about a lot of these sentiments with the Jorns versus the Cardassians and the entire war that engulfed the station because of their of their unrest, of their combativeness. Absolutely. You you know, in Deep Space Nine, it was that was the very backdrop. You had the legacy of a long occupation. You had the legacy of uh, of a colonial species and the species that just threw off the shackles. And can the species, the Bajorans that, that just threw off the shackles of their oppressors, can they form a functioning civil society? Do they have what it takes after years of occupation, can they still, you know, work through those scars? Can they work through their own internal divisions? And you have breakaway splinter groups. You have the True Way, which is our Cardassian ultranationalist group. You have uh, the, the, I think, the True Circle or the Full Circle in uh, early season two of DS9, who is a very ultranationalist Bajoran splinter group. And you have all these elements that are, you know, stepping in to impede progress. And it's all about how the Bajorans have to learn to trust Starfleet. Starfleet have, you know, has to learn to give the Bajorans the confidence or or trust the Bajorans to make the right decisions. And they're all operating in an environment where everything is working against them. And, you know, your scenario norm is something that definite has definitely has echoes to that. And it would have been very compelling because it would have brought it back to things that the viewer sees on an everyday basis in the here and now. And it's a fine, ba- it's a fine, it's a fine line to walk because there has to be a balance. When a viewer, you know, watches Star Trek, there's a certain part of the viewer that wants an escape from the problems that he or she is seeing. So he doesn't want to, he or she doesn't want to be weighed down by the complete negativity that the that the show is trying to to emulate in terms of realness. But at the same time, it has to use that that situation as merely a backdrop for them to use the, the Trek optimism, for them to overcome those obstacles. I think that's the important thing. I love Battlestar Galactica, but I find that a lot of Battlestar Galactica can be too grim. That It's a show that I 
rarely revisit because it's a too serialized and b sometimes it is too dark for its own good and you know trek ron has, moore's battlestar galactica what was that ron moore's battle ron moore's battlestar galactica so i think trek has to find that balance of being relevant and taking what is relevant for the modern day and sometimes that is very negative but at the same time using that only as a backdrop to then overcome that and if you don't have that one two punch then it can become too nihilistic it became too it can become too negative and it you know becomes a lot like all the other very grim dark shows out there right now i agree completely i think with with your sentiments about battlestar it was a great show and i used to really really enjoy that show but also i mean there were times where i like i would have to take a break from it because it was just so so heavy and it's not necessarily a bad thing if it's the kind of show uh you're going for it's just as you said you have to strike that balance in in trek and i think it's really doable i think there are times when and all of the shows have struck that balance really well of having things of really heavy topics ds9 did it really well uh and even Enterprise did it pretty well, especially in season four when we started dealing with Terra Prime. Uh, and it would have been really interesting for the first season. So before I get to this final topic that I'd like to talk about, this is probably the biggest point of contention in Enterprise as a whole, all four seasons. And I wanted to give us enough time to talk about it because if done properly, or if it was done properly, it could have been a real force for great storytelling in Enterprise. And I'm going to pose a couple questions to Will and Tommy here to see if we can unravel the mystery of the temporal Cold War. Because there there were kernels of promise, but... It was dropped on the show so haphazardly that it never really had a chance to gestate and be executed in a manner that made sense as the through line for the show. You can't just say, hi, I'm from the future. We have all these problems. I've been sent here to save you. And now you can go on your mission. Because it just doesn't work that way. The audience is too savvy when it comes to temporal mechanics. We've seen it in every iteration of Star Trek. We've seen it in all the genre programs that were of the time. Doctor Who, Back to the Future, you name it. Someone somewhere along the line that is a fan of this genre has been exposed to really strong temporal mechanics storytelling. So in order to have done this properly... You really needed a slow burn from the very first episode in Enterprise. And I think they had the potential with Crewman Daniels because he was a nobody. And like the end of Red October, that nobody became a complete somebody. And that was the cook. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. right, That's right. Yeah. He affected the entirety of the of the climax of, of the movie and of the book. And Crewman Daniels kind of started off that way. He was just this, he was a crewman. He was almost like a purser or a gopher for Captain Archer. No one knew who he was. He was, he was in the background, which is perfect for a character like this. It should have been Chef Daniels. And he was the one, he was the one all along. I almost thought you said Jeff Daniels. I'm like, that would have been great too. (laughs) Jeff Daniels playing Chef Daniels. Oh man. (laughs) Now you're turning time on itself there. We have a paradox and my mic's going to explode. No, but we have so we have that we have and here's an idea I wanted to throw at both you guys too. So we have the aspect of Truman Daniels, and the other thing I wanted to talk about was the Vulcans because the Vulcans were atypical of what we knew of Vulcans from Kirk's time and forward. And I think we could have explained away that better if we believed that the Vulcans have been compromised at the temporal level, that the quote unquote alternate faction of the temporal cold war started to influence the Vulcan high command with promises of winning the struggle against the Andorians, possibly giving them better technology to hide their station at Pajem. Because do you really believe a station, a listening post of that size could have been hidden by the Imperial guard for that long? I don't think so. So you have this 
carrot that's being dangled in front of the Vulcans with the promise of influencing the galaxy in the way that the Vulcans would have liked as being the stick. So you you have this potential in there. And what do you guys think of these two possible story ideas? Go. Well, I think the idea of the temporal Cold War influencing the Vulcans and the Andorians is really interesting. And it's an approach I'm actually taking with Horizon. And especially if you can turn it all back around to the Romulans. I think that's where things start getting really interesting because in season four we see uh, there's some goings on behind the scenes of the high command of of Velas working with the Romulans. Now, what if the Romulans were working with the future guy, and he was the one instructing the past Romulans to work with Velas, or he was instructing the Vulcans to work with the Romulans? You know, something like that. You could have. Mm-hmm. Taking it all back full circle from originally just starting with Future Guy, and then by the end of the show, you have the Romulan War, you have it all tied in with the Cold War. It, and I think it would have been perfect, but as you said, it's just it kind of got dropped and it was not handled properly. It's a really cool idea this idea of a temporal Cold War where you have factions in the timeline each trying to do their own thing. Uh, it's and I know even Brandon Braga wasn't a huge fan of it, the way it was executed. And it was an idea he had for another show, actually. And he adopted it for Enterprise at the network's behest. Um, it, it just, that, I think that is probably one of the biggest missed opportunities of Enterprise. And then, of course, just by the time they decided to resolve it, I think it was just, it, they tried to do too much at one time when they resolved it with the Nazi arc. It just didn't really... I like the episodes, but they just didn't really have that much of an effect on me. Yeah, I think you could definitely tell the reluctance of the producers to have this storyline because it was put on at the insistence of the studios. So it was done... You know, when you do something, you know, haphazardly or half-heartedly, those are often the, the times when the result comes out the worst. And you could just see that type of, you know, they're writing it because they have to and they're and they're making the best of the situation. But at the same time, if they had if they had buy-in from the get-go, if they really wanted this to work, they could have mapped it out, like Tommy and you said, Norman, in terms of tying it into the larger story of Enterprise. And, you know, the the outcomes are, were limitless. You know, the Romulan War could have been a, you know, a part of the overall temporal Cold War. It could have been them trying to manipulate the Romulans to win the war, to get the advantages. And, you know, it could have been that entire back and forth of how much do you help or how much do you interfere in the past? Do you, 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 you know, it's only, you can only interfere enough to achieve your objectives, but you can't change too much in terms of, of the timeline because you might change your history completely and it's it's this type of tinkering at the edges and how far you can go testing the limits of uh of the of your actions of of your uh, the action of of your opponent causes a counter move on on your end which causes a counter counter move down the road and it causes the risk this ripple effect that could have been explained in in subsequent seasons and with the vulcans with terra prime with paxson it could have you know very it could have been an easy outlet for them to have been manipulated. You know, Paxson could have been manipulated by one faction. The Vulcans could have been manipulated on on, on the other side, and na- neither side knows their pawns of a larger game until the end of season two, when Archer of all people realizes that they're being manipulated, and him showing evidence of this manipulation to the Vulcans could have gone a long way uh, in terms of convincing the Vulcans that maybe humanity is ready, maybe. They're not as inexperienced or naive as we thought if this human captain was able to see something that we never thought was even possible. And it just opens up, you know, the doors to just making a much more coherent storyline because, as you guys mentioned, it's not a bad idea if, it, if they, you know, actually believed in the idea in the first place. I think the TCW uh, could have easily been Enterprise's mystery box, as J.J. puts it. I think, because I've heard J.J. talk about in interviews when he's writing, 
the concept he really likes is the mystery box. You're just constantly unpacking these layers of a mystery until you get at what the mystery is. That makes for really interesting storytelling. And I think it's where shows like Fringe and Lost really, really thrived. Because you think about Lost, if anyone's familiar with it, they had the whole Dharma uh, initiative angle. And that wasn't something that they pursued every week. They had the whole angle of the hatch, of what was under the hatch. And that was not pursued every week either. But it was this mystery, this grand mystery that you were trying to figure out what would happen if you didn't press that button every hundred minutes or whatever it was. And I think the temporal cold war totally could have been that you're constantly trying to figure out, you know, what these factions are, what they're doing, who's on which side. And, you know, you find maybe this outpost, the Romulan outpost or something that's run by for the temporal cold war. I don't know. There's just so much, potential for mystery and intrigue there that I think was just totally missed because I don't think the writers really wanted to commit to it. Yeah, And that's something that you have to take a look at as a writer in terms of the overall story arc of, of a series. And I always found that it's really a, a great opportunity for writers to focus on this kind of this microcosm of a storyline and then pull back and then pull back and then pull back and then pull back and see the rings and the layers of all the relationships that work in between from this really intimate type of story when you're dealing with focusing on character arcs, pulling back a little bit and dealing with the organizational structure of the story with all the different governments, pulling back even further and seeing how the influences of all these different temporal agencies are using all of these different organizations like Starfleet, like the Romulan Star Empire, like the Vulcan High Command, even bringing the Klingons, the Tholians, the Andorians, and everything's being moved around in terms of positioning like chess. Everyone's trying to find that advantage. And wouldn't it been really interesting if they gave this one pinnacle character and this character I'm talking about would be Captain Archer, the responsibility of being that linchpin of all of these movements. Remove him from the equation and history is forever changed. So whose best interests would it be from these temporal Cold War factions to maintain the status quo of Archer being in the exact place and the exact time for history to unfold. Because it very well could be the Klingon Empire and the temporal forces that support them, or the Tholian Empire, because we need Archer to do this in order for us to do something 500 years in the future. That's where the ripeness of using temporal mechanics can work in a storytelling's favor, if you can see it from that perspective. I mean, think about it this way. Section 31 could have been created by temporal Cold War agencies in order to govern Starfleet at the macro level. Or I'm sorry, at the micro level for the macro, for the macro perspective. The Tal Shiar for the Romulan Star Empire, same thing. Oh, that's, that's deep, man. You're going ab- above, the la- above the layer of secret <laughs> police and secret you know, organizations that there's another entity, another cabal that manipulates them. That's... That's some next level stuff right there, man. <laughs> well, uh, since the show was canceled, I've been thinking about these things for a little bit. So they're just kind of pouring out on the mic. Right no, it's now. a but good no, idea. And I actually just you know, thought of something. You know, you you had just mentioned the the centrality of, of Archer. You know, if you take him out of the equation, history changes. And I, I think a lot of ways, you know, Archer, you know, from what we've seen in Enterprise, he is an exceptional man when he becomes, you know, the president and the signing of the Federation. They do make that clear. But I just realized that, they could have taken the idea even further in terms of his relationship with Shran because the Babel arc and how he gets the initial coalition working, the initial alliance working, is only because of the relationship Archer has with Shran. And if you remember from the very first season, the Vulcans didn't want Archer to become captain of the NX-01. They actually wanted Gardner instead. So how crazy would it have been if the temporal Cold War faction was manipulating the Vulcans to choose Gardner because they realized if Gardner had gone out as a captain of the NX-01, 
he per- he perhaps would have had a complete opposite reaction when he met Shran. That relationship would have never developed because it's only contingent upon Archer developing that personal relationship with Shran and therefore the Andorians down the road to form the original nucleus of the coalition layer of the Federation. But if it was Gardner instead of Archer, then that would have never happened. Then the Andorians and the Tellarites and the Vulcans would still be at each other's throats and the Federation would have never been formed. Like it's that type of, you know, if you look at it now and take three, four or five steps back, you realize they could have really drawn that connection and really have made that point so much more poignant in tying it in with the overall temporal Cold War. That's a really cool idea. Just saying. I think what we're going to do is we're going to, um, I'm going to, I'm going to bottle up this entire podcast and I'm going to send it to CBS (laughs) and, and they're going to send it back to me and say that nice try kid. But uh, we're going to steal your idea, not (laughs) reference it. And then later down the road, use it. I just think, you know, when, when you, when you bring in the aspect of temporal mechanics, the sky's the limit because you can chicken and egg this thing to the nth degree. But why not take that and turn it to your advantage? Because if you're going to say the dynamic of A affects the dynamic of B, then why not just play that out and really dig into it or not even introduce it at all? Because you can't commit to time travel storytelling halfway because you're affecting too many ripples in the storytelling process of the series itself. Because if if you take out the entirety of the, the temporal storytelling from Enterprise as we've seen it, it affects nothing, right? It really does because there's nothing in there for it to change. It changes some things in season three a little bit maybe, but other than that, no, not really. Yeah, so, but if you really committed to it, it works its way into the fabric of the entirety of the storytelling so that you can't pull on a thread and not have it affect a character from season one or a character's relationship with somebody in season five. You know, I mean, and you could always drop in all of these ancillary secondary characters as part of this dynamic. What if Crewman Cutler, who we all love, what if she was an agent? Oh, now you've gone too and, far, man. You can't do that to Cutler. <laughs> she, she's too sweet. She's too lovable. I'm just, well, she can always be that. Yeah, no, she can I always, know. you know, but, you know, but that's, again, you can always go to the nth degree with it. And I don't know. I, I think that's just, it could have been great. I think we can all agree on that. And it just didn't get fleshed out properly enough. So, so in our final thoughts, this has been awesome. Just extrapolating and trying to just talk about what season one could have been because I think as enterprise fans, there's always these what if situations that always come up when we're watching enterprise, especially at the beginning because as fans and, and as students of the genre, there's always directions that you would have liked the show to have gone. I love enterprise and I think it's still a great show, but I really do believe that if they, went with the original concept of Star Trek meets the right stuff, we would have had a greater evolution of storytelling rather than pockets of really dense, excellent storytelling from time to time. And I really do think that's how the series progressed because you have to have a vision when it comes to Star Trek. You have to have a plan. And if that's not properly executed for whatever reason whether executives get involved or whether writing teams just don't execute properly. In this day and age, especially with the way that the fandom works, you're not going to get a lot of support and you're not going to win the loyalties of a viewing audience. So for my final thoughts, I just wanted to say that Enterprise had great potential at the beginning. It had some opportunities that were missed And I think that we had some really good discussions here about what could have been. And I'm sure our listeners probably thought about some of these similar topics because they're right there in front of you, especially the temporal Cold War and how everyone has probably tried to mentally fix it, at least in their headcanon. So in your final thoughts, gentlemen, 
do you think that the topics that we talked about could have been successful? Yes and no. Uh, I think some of them would have been successful in a different show, like uh, the various ideas about Enterprise being set on Earth in season one and, and doing a lot with Terra Prime. Uh, it, in the way Enterprise turned out, I don't know that it would have worked. But the stuff about Temporal Cold War, I think, yeah, definitely, like, that could have really used more love and attention. And if it had gotten that, I think it would have only made the show better. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to agree with Tommy, too. I think I've had a blast, and it's it's been really fun kind of extrapolating all of these ideas. But if you were taking, if you were taking a realistic look at what, which one of these ideas would have been used realistically within what we were given. I think I would have, obviously if, if I had my way being set on earth would have been my first preference, but I think that's always been a remote possibility. I think the temporal cold war, I think is an idea that, you know, if they had really bought into the idea, they could, they could fix this even in season two, they could have fixed this. You know, it was flexible enough of an idea for them to play with, to really integrate it more into the storylines they wanted to tell. And I think, Norm, you brought up a really good point about how Enterprise has these dense pockets of storytelling. I think that's a really good way to describe Enterprise is, especially in season four, you have these really dense, great nuggets of story, often in three in three-parters, in these really well-crafted three-part arcs. And you almost realize if they had spread some of that out, into the first, second, and third seasons. Well, maybe third season if they're still doing the Zindi, maybe not so much. But if they had spread it out in the first or second seasons, you could have seen that they had more than enough there to 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 weave into larger arcs throughout the entire series. And I think that's where Enterprise kind of fell down is outside of the initial idea of this being the first ship, this being the first warp five ship. Beyond that, there wasn't an overarching theme until you got to the very end of season four with the beginnings of the Federation. But between that and season one, there was not there wasn't a much of a cohesive element that was weaving through any of the shows. Season two is is great in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways it's also one, you know, it's episodic, it's it's one off, and, and the Zindi took it off in a in a new tangent. And you know, you really have a show that has these dense nuggets of, of 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 ideas that you just need to be unspooled. There's so much there that if only they had spread it out, unspooled it, they'd have tied it all throughout the series. But what you're left with is sometimes you just have to stumble upon these 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 pockets, and in the fan and uh, the the views of the fans, you kind of have to put them together yourself, and you know in a lot of ways, season four was the, the epitome of that everything was kind of, you know, they, they knew they were going to be canceled. So they had to put everything out there and a lot of it worked, but you realize if only they had spread it out and applied that same type of thought and foresight to making the temporal cold war work, making all these other elements tied together, you could have had just a much stronger product from start to finish. Absolutely. And, one of the things I'd actually like to put out there for our listeners, I would love to hear how you feel about the topics that we've talked about, because I'm sure that when you're listening to this podcast, you're probably saying to yourself, yeah, I kind of I kind of thought that same thing, or I have this idea because I've been thinking about it for just as long as you guys have, and, and I'd like to float this by you. So please, share with us, and because this... This particular topic, the the redo of season one, if you will, is it's always fun to talk about because there's always the what if possibility and Enterprise, if anything, was the series of what if because it was so good in so many ways and it hit the right beats in so many levels. But there are those what if moments that could have taken it from where it ended to, I think, possibly one of the strongest series, if not the strongest series in Star Trek. But that's just my opinion. I'd love to hear yours. 
So thanks, guys. Thanks, Will, and, and thanks, Tommy, for, for joining me on this journey. And wherever you guys are going to phase out of in time at the end of this show, I wish you Godspeed and good journeys. So that's been simply amazing talking about the reimagining of Enterprise Season 1 here in the conference room. But this isn't the only topic we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. And celebrate his life and celebrate his work and his talent and his integrity. And, and if you get a tear in the eye, that's okay. That's, that's, he would approve, Spock would approve. And, um, you know, he'd say, you humans, why do you feel you need to do this? But, but he would approve. Earl Grey. Like, I'm expecting Ricardo Martaban to, like, walk around the corner and be like, Captain Picard, welcome. This is Rise of Five. The shuttlecraft, the shuttlecraft. The orb. Usually you want to be able to capture it or isolate one, but you, you can't do that either because it just keeps, you know, so really does seem like a conundrum of, okay, how do we take this down? You know, this minefield, they are the triples of war. To the journey! One guy's like, why don't we just write better stories for Wesley? And then the lead writer's like, you out now! <laughs> the ready room. Riker's all pissed because he can't prop his leg up with no gravity. <laughs> he tries, though. He tries. He's trying. I can I can picture it. He's but got then the just, momentum makes him somersault. Which really just makes him yeah, look he's, spread he's eagle. Going in circles. He's spinning. <laughs> Commentary, Trek stars. It's also the end of a character and a thing that is really about how uh, death is just a part of life. And that while there's an end, it doesn't mean that it's the end. Literary Treks. Well, actually, it started out life as a comic book pitch. I originally came up with it to pitch to Wildstorm back when they uh, had the comics license. The idea was it would be a one-year series that would run throughout the 12 calendar months of 2001, which was the 35th anniversary of Star Trek. The 602 Club. Sometimes that just works better because you can create and craft a, a story that's very compelling because you're not having to worry about what's happened other places. Okay, we have to make sure this is going to connect to this and... My guess is somehow Agent Carter is going to have something to do with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. later on and maybe something that happens in Age of Ultron. Warp 5. In the history of Axanar, Alec Peters and Christian Gossett wrote a section of the history dealing with the Arcanus campaign. And in the Arcanus campaign, a majority of Starfleet ships were destroyed. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit that subscribe button because that helps us out greatly and it makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website, and grab the RSS link as well. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels, along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with Tommy or Will and discuss any of the ideas or topics that we've bantered around on the show today, Will, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Well, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Will underscore Win. It's spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. And you can find me in... The Babel Conference, which is Trek FM's dedicated Facebook listeners group. I'm always there. And I'm also the content coordinator for the network. So if you have any ideas on topics that we haven't mentioned or you want to propose future topics for us to talk about, just drop me a line and I'd be more than happy to talk. Awesome. Well, thanks. And Tommy, how about you? The main place I am usually posting is on the Star Trek Horizon Facebook page. 
And that's facebook.com slash horizon. Perfect, Tommy. Thanks so much for being part of the show tonight. I also want to say a special thank you to our associate producer for Warp 5, Floyd Dorsey. Thanks, Floyd, for all of your support through the network, through patreon.com. And you can find Floyd on the Babel Conference, Trek FM's dedicated Facebook listeners page. Now, if you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook, facebook.com slash trekfm, and as I mentioned earlier, the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at Trek FM and click discussion on the menu bar. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring Warp 5 and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Warp 5 and the network. And don't forget to check out Enterprise in Space, a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that will design and launch an 8-foot orbiter and return the craft to Earth. The NSS Enterprise Orbiter will carry more than 100 student-designed science experiments into space, and you can help make that happen. Visit enterpriseinspace.org to find out more and get your seat on the mission. Now, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference, our Facebook listeners page. You can also find me on Twitter at Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. I'm also a proud supporter of Alec Peters and the Axonar Project, and you can find me on the dedicated Axonar fan group page on Facebook. And lastly, I'm a proud sponsor of Trek FM through Patreon, and I'm an associate producer of four shows here on the network, Warp 5, The Orb, The 602 Club, and Axonar, the official Axonar podcast. So thanks everyone for listening, and join us again next time here in the conference room for another episode of Warp 5. <laughs>